The United Auto Workers Union is on strike against the big three automakers amid a fight for better wages and benefits. It's Friday, September 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the CDC says Florida's new COVID-19 booster recommendations are dangerous as the state experiences high levels of hospitalizations from the virus. Also this hour, many college grads in China can't find work in their chosen field, but they're still turning down factory jobs. It's the high-paying, high-skilled jobs that have been shrinking in numbers. And as part of our new field guide to Boston, how food helps build a sense of community in Mattapan. In sports, Red Sox lose their series against the Yankees, mostly sunny and in the 70s today, but that's likely to change as Hurricane Lee makes its way up the East Coast. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. United Auto Workers are on strike against Detroit's big three car makers, General Motors, Stellantis, and Ford. Alex McLennan of member station WDET reports the union has stopped work at three factories, one owned by each automaker. Represented workers walked off the Florida Stellantis plant in Ohio, a GM facility in Missouri, and Ford's assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan. That's where union president Sean Fain was as the strike began. Speaking on the picket line, he says he'll call for more work stoppages if he isn't happy with progress. We have a strategy we've mapped out, and we got a playbook we're going to play by. This is up to the companies. If they come to the pump and they take care of their workers, we'll be back to work. But if they don't, we'll keep amping it up. Detroit's car companies have been critical of Fain's fiery rhetoric and say his demands have not been realistic. Fain says talks are progressing but counters the big three didn't take the union seriously until too late to get a deal done. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. The impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is entering its last phase. Paxton is facing charges of bribery and obstruction of justice. The Texas Newsroom, Sergio Martinez-Beltran reports state senators are set to begin deliberations today. With those words, Paxton's defense announced it's ready to move to closing arguments. Impeached by the House in May, Paxton is accused of using his office to shield a political donor from an FBI investigation. The supporter, an Austin businessman, allegedly paid for Paxton's home renovations and helped him hide an extramarital affair. If convicted, Paxton would be removed from office. Outside of Texas, the Republican is known for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and for suing the Obama and Biden administrations over abortion policies as well as immigration. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention signed off on the latest COVID-19 booster shots this week. But as John Davis from member station WGCU reports, the Florida governor and members of his administration are pushing back against the latest guidance. Governor DeSantis and State Surgeon General Joseph Latipo have criticized both the CDC vaccine booster recommendation and the FDA's approval of it on a Zoom call. Uh, at another pre- recent press event, Latipo mentioned studies that he didn't cite, claiming they show apparent evidence that vaccines actually increase a person's chances of contracting COVID. Of course, health experts say these kinds of unproven claims are they just add to the misinformation that's already out there. That's John Davis from member station WGCU reporting. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The entire Massachusetts coast is now under a tropical storm warning. That's as Hurricane Lee continues to move north along the eastern seaboard. Forecasters now expect the Category 1 storm to stay around 200 miles off the coast, but it could still bring damaging winds, storm surge, and flooding to the South Shore Cape and Islands tomorrow. The state agency charged with publishing the disciplinary records of police officers in Massachusetts says it will keep the database public even as it makes corrections. The Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission says four law enforcement groups have asked for the database to be taken down. WBUR's Allie Dormanning has more. The first database had errors in 4.5% of the entries and was missing five entire police departments. Several fired police chiefs were also missing. Post Commissioner Marsha Kazarosian says there's never going to be 100% accuracy. Our goal and, and our mandate is transparency. And in weighing all of these uh, circumstances and everybody's interests, I think this is the most important step. Going forward, Post expects to update the database monthly. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Hundreds of thousands of students in Massachusetts are taking advantage of the state's universal free meal program. This is the first year the state is permanently providing free meals to schools. Kids in kindergarten through high school are eligible for the meals. Kevin Mulvey is the superintendent of the Quincy School District. He says so far this school year, they've seen a 25 percent increase in meals provided to students. This monumental change has given us the opportunity to end child hunger right here in our own community, which is amazing. The additional state funds will help us improve the overall quality and freshness of our meals, which is extremely important, and allow us to focus on buying locally and procure sustainable food and paper products. Massachusetts is the eighth state to establish a universal free school meal program. The T must take immediate action to avoid employee injuries or fatalities. The Federal Transit Administration directed the MBTA to make safety changes in a letter yesterday. That letter comes after four near collisions with track workers along train lines last month. Federal regulators laid out required changes and faulted the transit agency for failing to properly report the incidents. It's 706. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control in hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo, Route 9 Natick, and Innuendo.com. It was one win and one loss for the Red Sox yesterday. The team played a doubleheader against the Yankees to make up for Thursday's rain delay. The Sox shut out the Yankees 5-0 in the afternoon, but lost by three runs during the evening game. Final score was 8-5. That gave the Yankees Yankees a series win. The Sox now head up to Toronto to play the Blue Jays tonight. Partly sunny today with a slight breeze and temperatures near 70. Tonight, winds pick up as Hurricane Lee continues to make its way north, parallel to the New England coast. It'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 60. We may see showers overnight and into tomorrow as Lee passes by. Otherwise, mostly cloudy and a high near 70 on Saturday. On Sunday, things clear up and we'll have sunny skies with temperatures in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century.
On a Friday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Some of the United Auto Workers are on a historic strike this morning. The, the union workers... is striking at three assembly plants, one Ford, one GM, one Stellantis, the parent of Chrysler and Jeep, one plant in Michigan, one in Missouri, one in Ohio. Other plants across the country operate for now, although the union says it can expand the strike depending on the progress of talks. We've been reporting all week on the auto workers' bid for higher pay and a shorter work week. NPR's Camila Damanowski is at the picket line at the Fort Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan. Camila, what are you seeing there? Yeah, well, a nice sunrise at the moment. Uh, this is a big plant. There are a lot of gates. There are folks out at every single gate with picket signs. Uh, they're getting a fair amount of support from people driving by. You might be able to hear honking. But there have been some hecklers. Folks tell them to go back to work, as Jamie Rusco, one of the workers here on the line, told me. They don't realize what we're really fighting for. It's our families and our, our time away. We're here. I work with these guys sometimes 10 hours a night. I'm here with them more than my family. Mixed emotions on the line. You know, some people are scared. Some people are really amped up and ready for a fight. Yeah, what, what are union members telling you about why they felt they had to do this? Yeah, there is so much history playing out here along the line. Here's uh, Ali Alamara, a worker who I spoke with. We want to see everything that we lost 15 years ago. And we had to give back to the company. 2007, 2009, the union gave up a lot in order to help the car companies survive. And now workers say the, the, the companies have been thriving. They point to high CEO pay. That's something that both the union leadership and workers here on the line are talking a lot about. They're seeing these companies thrive and they aren't. So that history is really playing out here and why the union is pushing so hard for some things that in some cases are, are a real throwback to, to the union heyday. What are the specific demands of the UAW? Yeah, so there's a big wage increase that they're pushing for. They're asking for about 40%. The companies have offered about 20%. A return to cost of living protections that are tied to inflation. Uh, a bringing back of pensions instead of 401ks and retiree benefits. Programs to pay people when they're not working, when plants are shut down. There, it, it's, a, it's a pretty long list, and these are big asks. These are things that the companies say they can't pay and, and be competitive. And striking at only three plants, what's behind that strategy? Yeah, it's unusual. It's unusual that the union is striking all three companies at once. That's different. It's also a real, this is, again, another throwback, a historical reference here, starting with a small number of plants and expanding over time. That's something that the union used to do back in the 30s. And Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, he said that this is meant to be maximum flexibility, keep the companies on their toes. And he wouldn't give reporters very many details about what the plans are because, again, part of the goal is to surprise the companies here. Uh, I have talked to some labor experts who point out that this is also a way to conserve resources. You might be able to strike for longer if you start smaller. You know, actors and screenwriters are still on strike. UPS workers almost went on strike. What will the effect of this auto worker strike be beyond this industry? Yeah, their direct economic impacts depend on how big and how long it is. But what they win could also uh, affect labor movements uh, across the country as well, by way of example. That's NPR's Camila Damanowski in Wayne, Michigan. Camila, thanks. Thanks. Great to hear the sound on the streets. Now, auto parts suppliers employ close to 5 million people, and they could take a hit if this strike 
drags on. We turn now to Todd Olson, who employs some of those people. He is CEO of Twin City Die Castings, which is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, provides automakers with metal components. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Steve. Would you just describe for us what your business does and how long you've been doing it? Yes, we are a supplier of aluminum and magnesium components that go into uh, electronic enclosures that might house camera systems or control systems, uh, supply fan clutches, mirror mounts, transmission parts. And we've been doing it quite a while. We've been in business since 1919. We're uh, one of the oldest die casters in the United States. Wow. So you were you were doing this even before there were cameras and the sort of things in cars that are that are in them today. That's uh, that's impressive. Um, you supply all three of the big three automakers. Yes, we do. And uh, the transplants and uh, Tesla. Oh, okay. And so what does this strike mean for you? Well, we uh, right now, it looks like the uh, impact to us is going to be fairly muted right now with the different uh, tactics that they took to shut down specific assembly plants. Um, this time we've kind of got lucky. I think it's going to affect about two to three percent of our revenue, mm. uh, but uh, a larger strike uh, could impact up to twenty percent of our revenue overall. Okay, so the question is, how big does this get? That's the question you guys have to wrestle with there. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the targeted strike here was uh, with those specific plants was kind of a, a positive signal to me maybe that the the UAW is is uh, seeing a little bit of progress here because it could have been much more painful right out of the gate. I'm interested because your company is is so old. Uh, there must be company lore, I would think. And Camila Dominowski there was referring to strikes in the 1930s, strikes in the 1970s, different labor trends in more recent decades. Uh, are there stories about how some of those past strikes affected your business? Uh, yes, we've been supplier to the automotive industry uh, you know, for 104 years, and even just the recent strike, uh, I, you know, I was involved in, in 2019, that was for 42 days against GM, um, that, that's in our memories for sure, but uh, through the 70s we've lived through it, so that's one of the things that, that gives me some hope here, is knowing that uh, these things have happened are pretty much the whole time we've been in business, and, and and we've survived, but I don't, you know, some people won't. This is going to be tough. Uh, some people have, uh, in our industry, have much higher concentrations of automotive. We're about half, so we have some other items to offset that. Um, one great thing about us is we're employee-owned, so all of our employees own our company. That's how we, you know, deal with uh, making sure we have equity oh. between all of our employees. Meaning you're not a union shop? We are not a union shop. Like I said, uh, we are an ESOP. We're employee-owned. And uh, so everybody that that collects a paycheck after a year uh, has shares in our company. Do you have some employees, though, looking at the UAW demands and saying, wait a minute, we would also like a four-day work week? Yes, I've, I'm, I'm sure we do have... Uh, People saying that because we would all like a four-day work week, but actually our employees uh, work uh, uh, four days a week, ten hours a day. And, oh, so uh, they, they wait. So they already that. work a four-day four-day week where you are. Yes, but it's forty hours, not thirty-two. Okay, makes sense. So you're not going to be going down to thirty-two anytime soon. I, I don't think so. I think that'd be a little tough. We already have a, a difficult time uh, uh, putting people in all of our positions. So 
that'd make it more difficult. Todd Olson is the CEO of Twin City Die Castings in Minneapolis. Pleasure talking with you, sir. All right. Thank you, Steve. You have a good day. You too. How do people in eastern Libya resume life in their devastated cities? Flooding in the city of Derna collapsed high-rise buildings in seconds a few days ago. Libya's Red Crescent says more than 11,000 people were killed in the city, and that is not a final number. NPR's Aya Batrawi is covering the story, joins us now from Dubai. Um, What do we know about the situation in this city today? We actually still don't know the full number of dead, but what we can see clearly from satellite images of Darna before and after Sunday night's storm is the scale of this devastation. Before this storm, the city of about 100,000 people in the eastern part of Libya had this gorgeous Mediterranean coastline. And now residents say the city is wrecked, buried under mud, and completely unrecognizable. And in those before and after satellite images, you can see soccer pitches where kids once played, mosques that served the community entire buildings and now they've just vanished all the bridges that connect the cities east to west were destroyed and wiped out when this heavy rainfall from a storm burst two dams in the city and the deputy mayor of darna the city told al jazeera those dams hadn't been maintained in over 20 years so when those dams burst around 3 a.m in the middle of the night you can imagine most people were asleep Um, Some people did try climbing to rooftops, but even that couldn't save some of them because their buildings just crumbled under the weight of this tsunami-like torrent of water. So now you have about a third of the city's residents homeless, medical services overstretched, roads cut off between eastern cities in Libya, and the threat of disease and contaminated water from all of this. Wow. All that just sounds awful. Um, What are people there saying? Well, there's a collective trauma. I mean, you have people who've lost their children, their spouses, their parents. They just vanished within seconds. These bodies were swept out into the sea. There may never be closure for them. There may never be burials. Um, my colleague Fatima Al-Kasab, she reached Dr. Najib Tarhouni in the eastern city of Benghazi in Libya. He has relatives in Darna who survived. The city is no longer livable. These people now need jobs. They need taken care of, uh, psychological support. The stories are horrifying. They have seen death, not just in their families, but within themselves as well. Their souls are crushed. Their, their hope is lost. How can you come back from such a thing? We know that uh, Libyans from across the country are trying their best to help, and international aid is is on the way. Uh, Some are saying, though, it's not getting to Derna quickly enough and that this tragedy might have been avoided. I mean, yeah, just start with the country's oil reserves. This country should be prosperous. But for the past 10 years, it's been under two divided governments, divided rule. You have one government claiming authority in Tripoli, the capital. You have another government claiming authority in the east and Benghazi. And you can imagine how that's gotten in the way of everything, including the relief effort. You know, even just journalists and aid workers trying to get into Libya are finding a logistical nightmare to do this. Visas issued from Tripoli might not be recognized in Benghazi. You know, security permits issued from Benghazi might not be recognized at certain border crossings. And all of this makes aid getting in extremely difficult. is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, in a boost to the tech industry, this year's biggest initial public offering of British chip designer Arm saw shares soar on the Nasdaq yesterday. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
we will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. There's a troubling trend in medicine. Cancer rates among people younger than 50 are rising. Seeing somebody in the prime of their life, in the height of their career, having young children, being hit with an advanced terminal diagnosis like this is what keeps me up at night. What we know and what we don't about the rise in early onset cancers. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly cloudy today with a high near 70, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 60. Hurricane Lee will pass by overnight with the greatest impact across the Cape and Islands, where wind gusts of 50 to 60 miles per hour are possible. There's a tropical storm warning in effect for the entire Massachusetts coast and a high surf advisory in effect for many areas with some coastal flooding possible. Showers are possible Saturday, otherwise cloudy with a high near 70. Sunday, it clears up for a sun day with a high near 80. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from 20th Century Studios presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller rated PG-13 now playing only in theaters. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. In the new film, A Million Miles Away, Michael Pena plays Jose Hernandez, who chases a childhood dream of becoming a NASA astronaut. The thing is, Jose comes from a Mexican-American migrant worker background, and he thinks that works against him. Even though he's a successful electrical engineer, he used to work the fields with his family, moving around from town to town, not even learning English until he was about 12 years old. But one night, his best friend Beto offers a perspective that makes the stars align. Tell me something. Who better than a migrant? Somebody that knows what it's like to dive into the unknown. It's a true story, so it's not a spoiler when I say that Jose does indeed make it to space. The movie's out on Amazon Prime Video. It's directed by Alejandra Marquez Abella, an up-and-coming Mexican director who's been learning what she can achieve in a predominantly white male Hollywood system. Because you grow up watching how a director looks, and I didn't want to feel that I had to become someone else. And through the the whole thing, I I just realized that I wasn't going to change the perception that others have on who I am. I just could accept myself. And I think that was like a big change in my career. So how did you want to approach this film? Because I was looking at all the things you've done. And I would assume, is it fair for me to say that this is the biggest project you've ever been part of? This is my biggest project. Yeah. yeah. So how did you want to approach just 
the, the bigness of it. I think Jose's story was a big inspiration because I felt really small, you know, in front of this project. And I, and I kept thinking, well, if Jose went into NASA, he walked into NASA, no, as a Mexican farm worker. Literally walked into NASA <laughs> to drop off his application, as we see in the film. That, so that was just such an inspiring thing to have in my mind, and it just pushed me. I've applied 12 times, and yes, sir, I've, I've been on the verge of giving up after each and every rejection, but you know what, sir, here I am. So you could turn me down again, but rest assured, I'll be standing here again in a year. Yeah, and then accepting your orange is a big theme in this movie because I think for a lot of people that accept who they are, they think that maybe that caps who they can be. And I think one of the persistent stereotypes I always feel about migrant workers is that they're hard workers. But what we see in A Million Miles Away is ambition. And that's something that I don't know if people associate with migrant farm workers, that they have ambition. I haven't thought about that, but you're right, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's a combination of ambition and work ethic. I think the field brings an ethic to those who inhabit that life. I think migrant farm workers are invisible. It's not just their ambitions that are invisible, but I think that we should think of migrant farm workers every day. You know? Their labor and their dedication is so important. It maintains everything else. Yeah. Identity is also a big theme in this movie. And, and one scene, um, Jose feels like he is the lone Latino at his engineering job. Actually, he probably was the lone, lone Latino <laughs> at this job. This is when he when he uh, is trying to figure out how to conceptualize his dream of becoming an astronaut. And he feels like in his job that he sticks out. And he consistently turns down his mother's offer to pack enchiladas for his lunch. And in this scene, uh, his yeah, sister kind of calls him out on it. I already told her, no, I don't want to be known as the enchiladas guy at work. So, thank you. Oh, oh, okay, I see. What do you mean you see? Nothing, I just see. There's this um, dish in Ecuador, that's where my family's from. It's called bolong. Plantains, fried plantains that are crushed up and then mixed together with chicharrón and egg. I'll never forget the day that I didn't want to take it to school because it wasn't what every other kid at school was eating. It's, I think, a situation where I know I found myself in this situation where I'm the only person in a room that's like me, and you feel like you stick out and you don't want to. I know. I've been in that situation a lot, and I think it was a very important experience that I wanted to take to the screen. And that's an, uh, a criticism that I'm doing to myself and to that attitude that I think we Latinos may have a lot of times. And I just think that being unique in a room makes you powerful. It shouldn't make you weak. Now, when it comes to setting goals, because one of the things that struck me in this film is Jose's father, when he was a boy, told him of the five ingredients that he uses to keep focused. What's your goal? How far do you need to go? Draw a roadmap. If you don't know, learn. When you think you've made it, you probably have to work harder. Now, in this scene, Jose reveals what his goal is to his future wife, Adela. I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> I think every kid in 1969 wanted to be an astronaut, so he wasn't special because mm. of that. And I think that the hard part for him was sort of landing that idea into a reality in his heart and in his mind. Like, how do I pronounce 
you know, these, these words, I want to be an astronaut without getting people to laugh at me. I think he had gotten to a point where he didn't care who laughed at him. He seemed to say it in a way where I don't care who thinks it's stupid. I'm, that's my goal. I'm going to say it out loud and put it out there in the world. Yeah, and I, I think it takes for you to say it out, out loud to become real. But it also, I think it, you, you shouldn't care if people laugh at your dreams you know, it's hard, it's, though. I mean, when you have a dream that seems like so like there's no way you could achieve it or it just seems like you you want to do that. It's hard to face that wave. It feels overwhelming. I know. But I think you should consider that it's easy for everyone else to laugh at someone's dreams. It's not hard. It's judging the other without making an effort of anything or being vulnerable or, you know, so I guess it's such a courageous thing to be able to name what you're after and just say it. That's director Alejandra Marquez Abella. Her new film is called A Million Miles Away. Alejandra, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.40 on Morning Edition. We get an update on recovery efforts from the earthquake in Morocco, including the impact on indigenous communities. It's 7.29. Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep comes to City Space on Wednesday, October 4th, to discuss his new book, Differ We Must, with On Point host Megan Chakrabarty. Get your tickets at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. GoEndlessEnergy.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The death toll from this week's flooding in eastern Libya now tops 11,000. That's according to the Associated Press. Bodies continue to be found in and around the coastal city of Derma amid damage described as catastrophic. Martin Griffiths is the UN's emergency relief coordinator. We don't know the extent of the problem. The floods and the torrents and the destroyed buildings and the sludge still conceal the level of need and death. Torrential rains caused two dams to give way in the mountains above Derma. The United Auto Workers Union is on strike against Detroit's big three automakers. About 13,000 UAW members walked off the job this morning at three plants, ones belonging to Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. Steve Carmody with Michigan Radio spoke to some of those walking the picket lines at a Ford plant in Wayne, Michigan. Several of the the UAW members who I've spoken with say they've been preparing themselves for a strike and being out for a while for several months because they knew this was a strong possibility. So many of them have been cutting back on expenses all through the summer, knowing that this could be a long fall without a job. Contracts covering nearly 150,000 UAW workers at the three automakers expired late last night. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The National Weather Service has placed the entire Massachusetts coastline under a tropical storm warning as Hurricane Lee approaches. Forecasters expect the Category 1 storm to bring damaging winds and floods to the Cape and Islands tonight and into tomorrow morning. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says seas could churn waves up to 12 feet by the end of the day and up to 15 feet by tomorrow morning. There's going to be significant beach erosion, large crashing waves at the coast, and some minor coastal flooding, especially for Cape Cod Bay and Nantucket, midnight high tide, and then the midday high tide tomorrow, just because so much water is going to be piling up. Officials say waves off the coast will be dangerous, so you should stay out of the water. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is planning to end a decades-long relationship with Brigham and Women's Hospital. Instead, Dana-Farber will partner with Beth Israel Deaconess Deaconess Medical Center to build a standalone cancer hospital. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. The news came as a surprise to leaders at the Brigham and its parent organization, Mass General Brigham. But Dana-Farber's CEO, Dr. Lori Glimcher, says it's time to move on. The Brigham and MGH have their own visions, and we have our visions, and they're both good visions, but they're not the same. And so we looked for another partner who would be excited about helping us with a new cancer hospital, and that was Beth Israel Deaconess. Dana-Farber's plans require state approvals, and nothing will change for at least five years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Four more people have now been successfully pardoned under Governor Healy. The governor's council yesterday voted to approve the pardons. Council members tell the Boston Globe almost all of the new pardons give second chances to people who committed crimes as teenagers. The convictions range from drunk driving to armed robbery between the years of 1979 and 2016. There is a heightened risk of mosquito-borne illness in Massachusetts. Public health officials say they detected mosquito samples containing eastern equine encephalitis, or triple E, in six communities in Worcester County. Those include Douglas, Dudley, and Oxford. The virus has not been detected in any people or animals. While rare triple E is potentially fatal, the virus has also been detected this year in Connecticut and Rhode Island. It's 734. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Red Sox ended their series against the Yankees last night with a loss. The Sox started yesterday's doubleheaders with a 5-0 win over the Yankees, but they lost 8-5 during the evening game. The teams are now tied for last place in the American League East. The Sox head to Toronto tonight to take on the Blue Jays. A mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 70, mostly overcast tonight with a low around 60, and the winds will start to pick up as Hurricane Lee passes by. The Cape and Islands may see wind gusts of 50 to 60 miles per hour. Showers are possible throughout Saturday. It'll be overcast with a high near 70, then skies clear on Sunday, and we'll have a sunny day with a high near 80. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston at 735. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, 
a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. A lot of companies are showing confidence in the economy. In particular, more companies are diving into the stock market, making initial public offerings. An IPO is when a privately held company puts shares of stock up for sale. Companies as old as Birkenstock and as new as Instacart are doing this, which executives do when they think the market is heading up. Here's NPR's David Gura. Maybe you haven't heard of ARM, but it designs high-end microchips that are in smartphones and supercomputers all over the world. And ARM's shares are now trading on the NASDAQ. When ARM's CEO rang the opening bell, that signaled the start of what Wall Street hopes will be a string of big-dollar initial public offerings. ARM's IPO is renewing confidence in the markets after a tough stretch. 2022 was defined by high inflation and concerns about geopolitics. The Federal Reserve hiked interest rates aggressively. David Bauer is the global head of equity capital markets at KKR. I think we're at the start of what is a new cycle and one that will, I think, extend through 2024. This last cycle ended with a sharp downturn. This year, there have been about 100 new listings on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. In 2021, there were more than 1,000. Investors were willing to make riskier bets back then when borrowing was cheap. But Bauer says that's changed. I think investors are looking for profitability. They do want a company that has a more predictable and understood business model. The mood on Wall Street is improving and stocks have been on a tear. There's less volatility, less worrying about a recession. And Birkenstock, the centuries-old sandal maker, believes the timing is right for its IPO. So does Instacart. It postponed its stock market debut last year amid the downturn, and its valuation today is billions of dollars smaller. Rachel Gehring is a partner at the consulting firm EY, who says companies are being more realistic and no longer chasing sky-high valuations. We're still kind of going through a valuation reset. On Thursday, Arm started trading at $51 a share, and the stock ended the day at $63.59, up almost 25%. A successful debut like ARMS can lead to more and more IPOs, according to Robert Profusek. He's the head of the mergers and acquisitions practice at the law firm Jones Day. Because, you know, the assumption is if you can get something really, really big done, there's demand. That's always a big factor. And in the weeks and months to come, companies will assess that, including many that are still on the fence about going public like the fintech company Stripe, and Liquid Death, a company that sells canned water. David Gura, NPR News, New York. In June, the urban youth unemployment rate in China hit 21%, but at the same time, Chinese employers were struggling to find workers for their factories. Our colleagues over at The Indicator, Darian Woods and Waylon Wong, have been exploring this disconnect. Their conversation with one young Chinese woman with a secret offers some answers. 
Arza always wanted to be a cartoonist growing up. She couldn't quite get that job out of college, but she worked instead as a content editor for an entertainment news publication. And initially, she loved it. My job was so great. I was very happy every day and felt amazing when I produced good content. When I looked at the results of our output, I thought to myself, well done, it's worth all the effort. Well, it didn't last. Uzza found herself hopping from job to job and ended up in a job that didn't give her a lot of joy. There was pressure from various targets, which made my boss quite stressed, and he passed that stress on to us. Our work life was like being on a horror cruise every day. So earlier this year, she quit. But when deciding whether or not to take on a new job offer, she reflected on work life in general in China. In China, there's a schedule called 996, and that means starting the day at 9 a.m., finishing at 9 p.m., six days a week. And although this is technically illegal, very long hours are still common in China. It was just too much for Aza, and so she told her parents she was still working. But meanwhile, wearing her work clothes and a face full of makeup each morning, she'd walk to her old bus stop and then keep walking into a cafe. There, she'd take out her pencils and work on one of her hobbies, drawing. Drawing is the best way to pass the time, in my opinion, because you'll spend most of the time drawing without even knowing it. And you might be thinking, how can she afford this? Well, Aza doesn't have to pay rent or a mortgage, which is perhaps more common for young people in urban China than you might think. They're almost certainly going to be an only child on both sides of their family. Nancy Chen is a professor of economics at Northwestern University. She points to China's one-child policy, this brutal enforcement of long-term contraception, sterilizations, and huge fines for having more than one kid. The policy was in place in China from 1980 to 2016, which means that most people at this age are only children. And they'll have grandparents who are from the city. So what this means is that they're going to be inheriting a lot of real estate from their grandparents. Not to mention, you know, maybe savings that their parents have been accumulating over time. Nancy was born in Shanghai in the late 70s and as a kid moved to the U.S. with her family. But she goes back often and has younger cousins who have struggled with China's changing economy. As China's growth has slowed, entry-level jobs in law, finance, tech, and government have dried up. White-collar jobs are incredibly competitive. It's the high-paying, high-skilled jobs that have been shrinking in numbers, and these are what the current cohorts of college graduate students have been trained for, what they're expecting, what they wanted. They're not there. Nancy says these young people are both spoiled, in her words, and also miserable at the same time. There's this huge gulf between expectations and what kind of jobs are available. In China, it's translating into a potentially huge problem for the economy. Tens of millions of young people out of the labor force might have serious long-term consequences. The best evidence we have, which is from the UK, suggests that one lost year of employment in your early 20s right out of college results to 13 to 21% lower productivity and wages 20 years later. Wow, 20 years later. There is a real concern that those lost years of work can have serious negative impact on your lifetime productivity later on, which is going to impact the aggregate productivity of the economy as a whole. Aza has a different view. 
Work is one of the only things that you can choose by yourself. And if you can't find your footing at work, then you don't have much meaning. Aza eventually got tired of all the questioning from her parents and lying to them. So she decided to confess. While her mother was watching TV, Aza said she hadn't been working. They said, that's okay. They very calmly accepted it. So I think they already knew. Waylon Wong. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Friday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, Florida's public health officials are defying CDC guidance and making their own recommendations about new COVID boosters. They say only those over 65 should get the shot. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Partly sunny and around 70 today. There's a tropical storm warning in effect for the Massachusetts coast as Hurricane Lee makes its way north. Winds pick up tonight as Lee is expected to pass by about 200 miles offshore. It'll be mostly cloudy and in the low 60s. There's a chance of rain throughout the day tomorrow. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the upper 60s. Then skies clear Sunday. It'll be sunny and near 80. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, Cambridge-based Moderna plans to cut four of its drug programs. The cuts come despite positive results in clinical trials. The company tells the Boston Business Journal it wants to focus on vaccines that fight infectious disease and cancer. The largest groundfish permit owner on the East Coast is now closed and filing for bankruptcy. New Bedford-based Blue Harvest Fisheries abruptly shut down its operations earlier this month. The company launched in 2015 with private funds to back its operations. It hasn't commented on the bankruptcy filing. Developers are one step closer to turning an area of Columbia Point in Dorchester into a climate-resilient mini-city. The Boston Planning and Development Agency has approved a plan for what's being called Dorchester Bay City. The $5 billion development will have 21 buildings and nearly 2,000 apartments. 20 percent of those will be affordable housing units. Developers tell the Boston Globe the project will likely take 10 to 15 years to finish. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end to end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. The earthquake in Morocco killed thousands and demolished entire villages in the country's Atlas Mountains. 
This area that was hardest hit is home to the Amazigh, the indigenous people of North Africa. It's where Amazigh scholar Brahim El-Galbi is from. He's an Arabic studies and comparative literature professor at Williams College. And he says the reason the Amazigh are in remote parts of the country to begin with was originally for protection. Historically, Amazigh have lived in the mountains because of the invasions that happened in the past mm. during the Roman times, but also during the Arab Muslim invasion of North Africa. Life in the mountains helped the Amazigh guard their language and culture, but today their isolation makes recovery efforts more difficult. You really see the territorial injustice that exists in Morocco because of the misdistribution of infrastructure in the country. A lot of focus went to larger cities like Marrakesh, Rabat, Casablanca, Tangier, which benefited from a lot of resources to be the cities that they are. I mean, they are great cities. We're very proud of them. But at the expense of these areas, which don't have paved roads, don't have bridges. And then all of this is compounded, of course, by the earthquake that damages everything that made the place accessible in the first place. So already this area is dealing with a lack of infrastructure, a lack of roads. This has now destroyed even the minimum that these areas have had. Exactly. So even the little that existed in the past to be able to access their villages, their schools, their hospitals is now gone. So really this earthquake has devastated these regions and highlighted just the inequity that exists in the marginalization. Yes. Very much so. And I hope, my hope is that the state will rethink its development strategy mm -hmm. and its infrastructure building strategy and also to rethink the idea of citizenship, really. If you could just explain that to me when you say take citizenship seriously. It seems like Moroccan citizens do not have the same access to state services. Like some live in the 20th century with all its benefits and infrastructure and access, whereas those who were hit by the earthquake really live in a different time. So when you think about, I mean, maybe it's even too early to talk about because you're talking about people who still haven't gotten any help yet, let alone thinking about reconstruction. But when you think about how to rebuild for the Amazigh people in these areas. What do you want to happen? What needs to happen? I would really advise them to think about preserving the Amazigh eco-friendly type of building, making it mm -hmm. earthquake resistant, helping people build strong homes. But if life is lost, and then we also lose all the Amazigh heritage that is encapsulated in the way the homes are built, the adobe housing, the architectural style, the techniques and the know-how that all went into making these homes that now are demolished, I think they can be built with new norms, but they should retain the spirit of the predominantly Amazigh area. Brahim Al-Galbi, Associate Professor at Williams College, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. This is NPR News. It's Friday, and that means StoryCorps. Coming up at 8.20 on WBMR's Morning Edition, we'll revisit a conversation with a young man with autism spectrum disorder. It's 7.50.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. What was once considered a rare political event has now happened three times in four years, an attempt to impeach the president. I suspect the political incentives now are, are going to push us toward having more impeachments rather than fewer. We look into how impeachment processes of the past are influencing the House Republicans' inquiry into President Biden. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. The entire Massachusetts coast is now under a tropical storm warning as Hurricane Lee is expected to bring damaging winds and storm surges to the region. Workers at all of the three big automakers are on strike together for the first time ever in a bid for better wages and benefits. And Florida public health officials are giving their own guidance on the new COVID booster, saying only those 65 and older should get the shot, despite CDC guidelines. Stay up to date on the news all day here on the on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. WBUR's new field guide to Boston highlights the city's food scene beyond the North End and Seaport. It offers more recommendations than just lobster rolls, chowder, and roast beef sandwiches. The host of our podcast, The Common, Daryl C. Murphy, and arts reporter Ariel Gray toured some of the restaurants in Ariel's neighborhood of Mattapan. They visited Le Foyer Bakery, a hub of Haitian cuisine for nearly 50 years. Here's a taste of what they found. So I got the, uh, the chicken patty. Delicious, nice and spicy. It's like real bits of chicken in there. I had the beef patty, and it was flaky, buttery, delicious, well-seasoned, just amazing. Just, I ate it so fast, I I don't know what happened. That's a poem right there. Poetry. <laughs> we caught up with owner Andre Etienne. Le Foyer has been in his family for three generations. His grandmother, Edna Etienne, started it with his grandfather in the 1970s. It's funny. Most people have this obsession with getting out of their parents' shadow. But I've never felt that way. I'm actually just glad to be under her umbrella still. The Haitian community in Mattapan is a one-of-a-kind. This is one of the largest uh, Haitian communities outside in the United States, outside of Miami. It still feels very much like we're all in this together. Joining me now in studio is the Daryl C. Murphy. Daryl, I'm pretty hungry right now. The place sounds amazing, and yeah. it has a considerable history. So what does it mean to Mattapan? La Foyer Bakery has been around for almost 50 years. And for a small business like that to survive in a city like Boston, mm-hmm. nonetheless, where you know things are very expensive, I mean, it, it says a lot, right? Um, and it means a lot to the Haitian community there as well. And what I find even more interesting is the story behind the ownership. You know, it's in its third generation of ownership. So it's passing on this legacy that uh, of this bakery, of this institution in the community, you know. And of course, at the end of the day, right, at the core of that 
is the delicious food. You know, you, you, you're not going to be around for nearly five decades if the food's not hidden, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and it, I mean, it's around because the community support. Right? That's right. That's right. Um, I remember reading somewhere uh, in the 80s, Edna Etienne, the founder of the bakery, she would give patties to kids in the community, you know? And at a time when Mattapan was really, really being hurt by violence and crime, they left her alone. So I just think it's a, a, a really interesting place uh, and something that um, I'm really glad to have visited and glad to be sharing with people. So where else did you go on this culinary tour of Mattapan with Ariel? We went to uh, Ali's Roti Restaurant. Um, I already knew about Ali's, and I just used this as an excuse to go. <laughs> because, listen, I love roti. That's my favorite food. When I first moved here myself, I was like, where can I get a roti? You know, and I, I tried some places. They were cool, but Ali's was legit. And my partner's Trinidadian. She gave it the stamp of approval. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely um, Ali's is a spot for me. Oh, I got to put that on the list. Yeah. So you did this tour on the Common as part of the Field Guide to Boston. And that's our way to help new Bostonians learn about their new home. So what else did you learn about the neighborhood and the community? I think it's less about what I learned about the neighborhood and the community and more what I learned about the city. Um, Mattapan represents a deep, rich diversity that's here that doesn't get talked about too often, you know, especially for an outsider. And I was just on the common. We just had a conversation with someone who said, like, it's, it's it's the same story over and over again when people are when black folks are moving to Boston People around them are like, are you sure you want to do that? You know, and there's no need for that, you know, and I feel like that's what a a community like Mattapan tells us, that there is a place for people of color, you know, because there there is some food here and um, there is a lot of culture here. There's a lot of there's just a lot of richness here, you know, and I I think um, a lot of times when we hear about Mattapan and you know this route because you've done some reporting on Mattapan. You know, Mattapan gets a bad rap for some of the violence that happens there, but that's still a community that's part of the city that's offering and contributing to um, the 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 mosaic of the city, right? Um, so definitely, uh, it, it's, it shows me that Boston has a lot of range. I'm so glad you added this to the field guide because one of the things I wanted it to highlight is that, you know, not all newcomers, especially newcomers of color, feel welcome yeah. in Boston. So you're kind of showing them, you know, a way to feel welcome, to feel part of Boston when you do arrive. Yeah, yeah, because it's, you know, the the things you hear about Boston, absolutely, you know, it's, it's true, right? But it's the same everywhere. <laughs> Every other city I've been to, I've dealt with the same type of issues, right? Um, same type of racism, microaggressions, whatever you want to call it, you know? And yeah, what, what we wanted to do at the Common with this trip to Mattapan was just ignore those narratives and just say, look, we got good roti here too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, come get some of this food. And, and this is Boston. Boston is really fresh. And I think Mattapan definitely represents that, you know? There's a smoothie spot that all the kids go to. Did you go there? Yeah, Cafe Juice Up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that story is really interesting because um, that's uh, uh, owned by Denise Omar. She founded that in 2018. And um, she's from the Caribbean. You know, she came there with a the mission to bring some healthy food options 
right? Because even though uh, as good as it is, roti is you know very heavy, you know, um, so you probably want to mix it up with some fruits and vegetables or whatever, right? And so she she's there with the smoothies, and she also has a community fridge, right? So um, beyond the diet, she understands that there's some food insecurity issues in the in the community, right? So she's doing her part to help out there. And, you know, I talked to her and, and that's what um, the, the restaurant is about. Check out the comment wherever you get your podcast. Daryl, thank you so much for stopping by Morning Edition to tell us all about this. Oh, thank you for having me. Can't wait to come back. <laughs> Can't wait to go out with you and do some eating. Let's do it. Check out the Field Guide to Boston at WBUR.org slash Field Guide. You'll find breakdowns of every neighborhood in the city and you can sign up for the newsletter to get tips straight to your inbox. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In an historic first, workers at all three big Detroit automakers are on strike at the same time in a bid for better wages and benefits. It's Friday, September 15th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, people in Birmingham, Alabama are gathering to remember the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which killed four girls 60 years ago. Survivors say there are lessons for America today. 60 years later, I see things that are frighteningly reminiscent of what happened in the 1960s. Also this hour, Hunter Biden has become the first sitting U.S. president's child to face prosecution. And we speak with the harbor master in Truro as Cape Cod prepares for the impact from Hurricane Lee tomorrow. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce will also tell us the latest on Lee's likely path. Partly sunny and around 70 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. About 13,000 U.S. auto workers are walking the picket lines this morning, just hours after contract negotiations broke down between the United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's Big Three car makers. Drivers honking their horns in support of striking workers at the Stellantis plant in Toledo, Ohio. Stellantis worker Letitia Hummer says there's no telling how long the strike will last. As long as it takes for us to get a fair, fair contract. I, I, I want to look out for my brothers and sisters. Negotiations broke down between the United Auto Workers Union and the three big car makers over wage increases and other demands. The death toll from catastrophic flooding in eastern Libya has surpassed 11,000. That's according to the Associated Press. Linda Vasulo reports the United Nations is asking countries for more than $70 million in assistance to help those impacted by the floods. UN humanitarian chief Martin Griffith says the UN is on the ground in Libya providing food and medical supplies and is deploying what he called a robust team to support the international response to the disaster. 
He described the scale of devastation as shocking and heartbreaking. Meanwhile, the director of the UN Meteorological Agency said most of the casualties could have been avoided if Libya had an operating weather service that could have issued warnings and emergency authorities able to carry out evacuations. Libya remains in political and military stalemates with two competing governments. For NPR News, I'm Linda Pasulo in New York. Lawmakers in Wisconsin voted to fire the state's top elections official just months before the 2024 primary. Anya Van Wagdendock from Wisconsin Public Radio reports the move sets up an unprecedented legal battle over who's in charge of elections in the battleground state. Republicans who control the state Senate moved to oust Megan Wolf. In response, Wisconsin's Democratic Attorney General Josh Call filed suit. Call said the legislature acted illegally in subjecting Wolf to a confirmation vote in the first place. He's asking a court to confirm that. And Wolf said she's continuing in the job. There is such important work ahead, and my hope is that we will quickly get the clarity that we need from the courts. The procedural wrangling comes after Wolf has faced years of criticism from supporters of former President Donald Trump. They've accused her of undermining the 2020 election, which Joe Biden won in Wisconsin by less than a percentage point. For NPR News, I'm Anya Van Wagtendonk in Madison. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. As Hurricane Lee moves up the eastern seaboard, the entire Massachusetts coast is now under a tropical storm warning. Forecasters expect the Category 1 storm will stay well off the coast, but it could still bring damaging winds and flooding to the Cape and Islands as it arrives tonight into tomorrow. Bill Malley is with the Utility National Grid. He says the storm could cause power outages that last several days in some places. If we are impacted by the storm, know that our early focus will really be on public safety. 911 calls, wires that are down, and of course, uh, supporting our customers who require electricity for medical devices. Around 1,500 utility crews statewide are ready to respond to outages over the weekend. Campaign finance experts say this week's preliminary elections in Boston signal a new era of big money in local politics. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports that a pair of political action committees were explicitly formed to unseat two embattled Boston city councilors. A super PAC called Forward Boston spent nearly $100,000 in the week leading up to the election to oppose councilors Kendra Lara and Ricardo Arroyo. Much of that money came from Republican donor Jim Davis, the chairman of New Balance. Both councillors lost their races on Tuesday. Political science professor Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University says the spending is part of a trend. We're seeing ideological money that we are used to seeing now in national politics actually being used in local politics. A representative of the Forward Boston and Enough is Enough super PACs did not return a request for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The Sumner Tunnel is closing again for construction this weekend. The tunnel will be closed to traffic starting at 11 o'clock tonight. MassDOT officials say it'll reopen before 5 a.m. Monday. This is the first of a series of eight weekend-only closures, which are scheduled through November. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
The Red Sox split yesterday's doubleheader against the Yankees. The day started off strong for the Sox with a 5-0 win, but they fell short by three runs in the evening game. Final score was 8-5. The Sox travel north today to take on the Blue Jays in Toronto. That game gets underway tonight at 7. Mostly sunny today with a slight breeze and temperatures near 70. Tonight, winds pick up as Hurricane Lee continues to make its way north. It'll be mostly cloudy with a low around 60. We may see showers overnight and into tomorrow as Lee passes by, otherwise mostly cloudy and a high near 70 on Saturday. On Sunday, things clear up and we'll have sunny skies with temperatures in the upper 70s. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The Centers for Disease Control gave one recommendation for the new COVID-19 booster shot. The state of Florida is giving another. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is running for president, partly on his record opposing COVID regulations, and his state government is making an issue of the booster shot. The federal advice is that anyone over six months old could use this booster. Florida's Surgeon General says far fewer people should get the shot and that healthy people under age 65 should avoid it. John Davis joins us now from our member station WGCU in Fort Myers, Florida. John, so how did Florida officials justify their own recommendations over those from the CDC? Well, they claim there isn't enough data to show the vaccine is safe and effective, but of course there's overwhelming evidence that is safe and effective. Governor DeSantis and State Surgeon General Joseph Latipo have criticized both the CDC vaccine booster recommendation and the FDA's approval of it on a Zoom call. Uh, At another recent press event, Latipo mentioned studies that he didn't cite, claiming they show apparent evidence that vaccines actually increase a person's chances of contracting COVID. Of course, health experts say these kinds of unproven claims are they just add to the misinformation that's already out there. And DeSantis's GOP presidential campaign has been quick to start fundraising around these Florida-specific response, promising to fight what they characterize as government overreach when it comes to pandemic precautions. But we should point out that there is no mandate with these boosters. This is all just about recommendations. So what do a health provider say? Well, I contacted Lee Health, which is the biggest health system in this area. They were clear that they're going to continue following CDC guidance on vaccines, which recommend most people six months of age or older get the shot, but especially those 65 and older as they're at higher risk of severe symptoms should they uh, contract the virus. Here's what infectious disease expert Dr. Mary Beth Saunders had to say. People do need to get vaccinated. If they're unsure, talk to their health care provider. So they can be guided as to what's best for them. And even though there is a lot of information on social media, that may not be the best guidance, right? We need to make our decisions based on the scientific facts and what is best for our own health. And then, John, all this comes as a COVID hospitalizations uh, in in Florida. The rates are, are not very good. Is that something to worry about? 
Certainly. According to CDC data, we have some of the highest rates in the country of COVID-related hospital admissions. Even Dr. Saunders says they experienced an increase in hospitalizations a few weeks ago. Fortunately, that has since declined somewhat. But of course, these hospitalization levels are nowhere near where they were at the height of the pandemic. And there's also a little worry that the vaccine booster may get here a little late because of ongoing impacts from Hurricane Idalia on infrastructure. But Lee Health expects to have boosters ready uh, sometime in October. All right, that's John Davis with WGCU in Fort Myers. John, thanks a lot for your reporting. Thank you. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has been indicted on felony gun charges. Prosecutors say that when he bought a gun in 2018, he lied about his drug use on a disclosure form. His attorney, Abby Lowell, told CNN the indictment should be thrown out. The constitutionality of these charges are very much in doubt. People ought to remember about whether this is a unique and unjustified charge. Hunter owned an unloaded gun for 11 days. NPR Politics reporter Jimena Bustillo reports. The president's son is being charged with making knowingly false written claims, lying to a federally licensed gun dealer when purchasing a firearm, and illegal possession of a firearm. This is in connection with a gun he bought in 2018. Earlier this summer, Biden had agreed to enter a plea deal that would have allowed him to avoid prosecution on the gun charges. Separately, as a part of the deal, he agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor offenses related to his filing of federal income taxes. But that plea deal fell apart after lawyers on both sides couldn't agree if the deal gave Biden immunity over his business dealings and foreign lobbying. The charges come after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy launched an impeachment inquiry into President Biden earlier this week. Eyewitnesses have testified that the president joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions. Dinners resulted in cars and millions of dollars into his sons and his sons' business partners. Although unrelated to the impeachment inquiry, these charges do have political implications. Any Hunter Biden trial is likely to be in the middle of the election campaign, where his father is hoping to get re-elected. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News. We now have a glimpse of life after a coup in Gabon. For over half a century, one family dynasty ruled the oil-rich Central African country. Then, in an early morning broadcast, a group of military leaders said they had seized power after a disputed election. President Ali Bongo became a statistic, the latest African head of state to be swept out of office in a military takeover. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu is in Gabon's capital, Libreville. Hey there. Good morning, Steve. What are you hearing from people there? Well, traveling in and around the city, the capital, um, it's pretty, actually, it's pretty hard to find someone who isn't really happy to see the back of Ali Bongo. Hmm. You know, I've heard many people describe his government as a monarchy, as an oligarchy, and as a kleptocracy. You know, I spoke to a 33-year-old woman called Winnie Minko. It is important to mention that talking about Gabon, do not just say it's a cure. Here we're talking about salvation. You know, she essentially said that while it was a military takeover, it was also a moment of salvation for many Gabonese people because this was a government that most people feared they'd never be free from, and now they are. And I think there's largely been this sense that while outside of the country, the coup's been seen as part of this troubling trend of coups in Africa, but internally, while people recognize that, they see this in their own specific context. And that context is the ending of Bongo family's grip on the country. Um, what is the status of former president, I guess we should say, former President Bongo? 
Yeah, well, he's been released from house arrest. Uh, um, he's reportedly still in Libreville at his personal re residence in the city. You know, his family are in and out of the country. One of his sons, who was actually tipped to succeed him, has been arrested. Mm. Um, the new military leader is actually his relative too, and he himself has been revealed to have bought foreign properties paid in cash worth over a million dollars in the US. Um, but he's been largely welcomed by many people in the country, although some people are upset that many of the figures in the old government are again part of the new transition government. But, you know, Gabon is theoretically this middle-income country, has the third highest GDP per capita in Africa, according to the World Bank. But these indices, they really belie the reality most people live through. You know, the country's large oil wealth hasn't benefited so many people here in the way it should have. So many roads are crumbling, the housing is decrepit. You know, there's a lot of deep resentment about how so much of the country's resources has been plundered. You know, Bongo was also heralded as maybe one of the most environmentally conscious leaders in the world, particularly by Western leaders and conservation groups. Hmm. But you know, and that's because most of the country is covered in rich, biodiverse forestry that he worked to protect. But one environmental activist I spoke to yesterday described it as greenwashing, in his words, and said that this helped to burnish his image abroad. I, I really appreciate the different perspectives you're bringing us here, Emmanuel. You're telling us that this coup, which we would disagree with in principle, is being welcomed at least by a lot of people in Gabon because they were saddled with this leader, this ruler for so mm -hmm. long, but then you're telling me that he was toppled by a relative who seems to have been part of the insider group and has mm -hmm. his own suspicions against him. Um, how is the, the new government, if at all, making the argument that they are real change? Well, they've done. A, they've made a lot of sweeping um, moves so far. You know, they have released political prisoners who were detained under President Ali Bongo. They have introduced some many of the old figures in the old government, but also some new figures too. Um, they have really kind of endeared themselves to the people by trying to show that the transition is going to bring genuine change, that there will be genuine elections in two years' time, roughly two years' time. They've spoken to civil society groups, opposition politicians, and so they're really leading this kind of very open process of talking to various stakeholders and trying to show Gabonese people that they are drawing a line under the past government. NPR's Emmanuel Akinmoto is in Libreville, Gabon. Thanks so much for your insights. Thanks, Steve. Okay, if you're looking to buy Apple's latest flagship phone, the iPhone 15 Pro, you might be in for a little surprise. That's because the mute switch, a feature that's been around since the original iPhone, is being replaced by what Apple is calling an action button. If you hold it down, it can still mute your phone or switch it to ring, but it can also launch a bunch of other shortcuts like launching the camera or the notes app. Uh, Devin Coldaway is a technology reporter at TechCrunch. Now, when the iPhone first came out, being able to quickly switch off sounds and alerts was critical to avoid disruptions. I mean, you need it in a radio studio, for example. Who wanted to hear this in the middle of an important <laughs> business meeting? Oh, sorry, my phone! It still happens every once in a while, but we now use our iPhones for so much more than calls. They're not just phones, there are computers where you get notifications all the time. It's perfectly normal to have your phone buzz in the middle of a meeting or dinner or even a date, and you just check it. Oh, although you may get a frosty stare. For Coldaway, the end of the mute button seemed inevitable. 
It's a change in philosophy, but it's also not really a conspiracy to make you be on your phone all the time. I think we were already on our phones all the time. And the action button will, in theory, make it easier to customize the iPhone for quick access to that camera for that fast selfie. Losing the switch, it kind of sucks, but it also might be really good for a lot of people. Oh, I'm sorry. I was checking my phone. Am I supposed to? Oh, I am supposed to say something here. Just like that, it's time to say goodbye to what Coldaway calls the iPhone's last significant moving part, a physical switch. You beat me to the joke. But if you must have a moving part, just buy a different iPhone model. Problem solved. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Friday with WBMR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we mark 60 years since the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. It killed four young girls and helped spur passage of the Civil Rights Act. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. TheFreedomTrail.org. There's a troubling trend in medicine. Cancer rates among people younger than 50 are rising. Seeing somebody in the prime of their life, in the height of their career, having young children being hit with an advanced terminal diagnosis like this is what keeps me up at night. What we know and what we don't about the rise in early onset cancers. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Partly cloudy today with a high near 70, mostly cloudy in the night with a low around 60. There's a tropical storm warning in effect for the Massachusetts coast with Hurricane Lee passing by overnight. The Cape and Islands may see coastal flooding and wind gusts of 50 to 60 miles per hour. Showers are possible Saturday, otherwise cloudy with a high near 70. Sunday, it clears up for a sunny day with a high near 80. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston. Join the area runners at City Space on September 29th for a jog around the neighborhood and a conversation with leaders in the Boston running community. Free tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two to five day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com slash advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. 
This month, we're marking 20 years of StoryCorps by revisiting classic conversations with updates. Today, we'll trace one remarkable kid's journey into adulthood. All right, my name is Joshua Letman. I'm 12 years old, and I'm here with Mummy. Joshua and his mom, Sarah Darer Littman, first recorded at StoryCorps in 2006. Joshua was an eighth grade honor student, but having a tough time socially. He'd been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and struggled with social cues. He sometimes had obsessions, but back then it was animals. From a scale of one to 10, do you think your life would be different without animals? I think it would be an eight without animals because they add so much pleasure to life. How else do you think your life would be different without them? I could do without things like cockroaches and snakes. Well, I'm okay with snakes as long as they're not venomous or like can constrict you or anything. Yeah, I'm not a big snake person. But cockroach is just the insect we love to hate. Have you ever felt like life is hopeless? Um, when I was a teenager, I was very depressed. And I think that can be quite common with teenagers who think a lot, you know, and are perceptive. Am I like that? You were very much like that. Do you have any mortal enemies? I would say my worst enemy is sometimes myself. But I, I don't think I have any mortal enemies. Have you ever lied to me? Hmm. I probably have, but I try not to lie to you, even though sometimes the questions you ask make me uncomfortable. Like when we go on our walks, some of the questions I might ask. Yeah, but you know what? I feel it's really special that you and I can have those kind of talks, even if sometimes I feel myself blushing a little bit. Have you ever thought you couldn't cope with having a child? <laughs> I remember when you were a baby, you had really bad colic, so you would just cry and cry. And What's I didn't colic? Know it's when you get this stomach ache and all you do is scream for like four hours Even a night. Even louder than Amy does? You were pretty loud, but Amy's was more high-pitched. I think it feels like everyone seems to like Amy more, like she's like the perfect little angel. Well, I can understand why you think that people like Amy more. Being friendly comes easily to Amy, but the yeah, people who like, take the time to get to know you love you so much. Like Ben or... Eric or Carlos. Yeah, and... Like, I have better quality friends, but less quantity. I, would, I wouldn't judge the quality, but I think... I mean, like, first thing is, like, Amy loved Claudia, then she hated Claudia, she loved Claudia, yeah, then you know she what? hated part of, Claudia. Part of that's a girl thing, honey. The important thing for you is that you have a few very good friends, and really, that's what you need in life. Did I turn out to be the son you wanted when I was born? Like, did I meet your expectations? You've exceeded my expectations, sweetie, because, you know, sure, you have these fantasies of what your child's going to be like, but you have made me grow so much as a parent because you think... Well, I was the one who made you a parent. You were the one who made me a parent. That's a good point. But also because you think differently from what they tell you in the parenting books, yeah. it's made me much more creative as a parent and as a person. And I'll always thank you for that. And that helped that. when Amy was born. And that helped with Amy was born, but you were just so incredibly special to me. And I'm so lucky to have you as my son. Five years after that first talk, Josh and Sarah sat down again for StoryCorps. Josh had just started college. He was depressed, and Sarah was worried. Does it bother you to think of home? I miss it. You know, I miss the dogs and everything. You miss the dogs? And you. And, <laughs> yeah. So how would you react if, like, I failed? Failed your classes? or Failed my classes, failed college. Well, if you came to me first and said, look, I'm having a really tough time, that's one thing. 
But if you just sort of announced to me that you failed, then I'd be upset because I know how much potential you have. Is there anything you want to tell me? What do you mean? Or was that a hypothetical question? That was question? Just like a hypothetical question, okay. yeah. All right. Josh ended up leaving school and moved back home, but he tried again and several years later had this conversation with his mom. Well, Josh, you just graduated from college. Mazel tov. Thank you. I mean, you certainly did really well. Yeah. You graduated with honors. Yeah, but not great honors. Uh. <sighs> Josh, it's been an interesting road. Tell me about it. From the beginning, I thought like I wasn't ready. I know. I pressured you to go. And ended up at being a disaster. I'm sorry about that. I screwed up. And that really made me doubt my judgment as a mother. Do you remember when I called you? I asked you if you were thinking of hurting yourself. Yeah, I do remember that. You said no, but I said, I'm coming to get you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I think you've come a long way. One thing that was a really pivotal moment was when mom died. When we found out, I fell apart so completely in that moment. I remember. Yeah. You know, like I had spent my life looking after you, but for the first time, you had to look after me. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, Amy would have done the same thing. I mean, I'm sure she would, but she wasn't there. You were, and you were a rock. It's hard to find a silver lining in losing my mother. Yeah. But I've always tried to think of that as the gift that mom gave me. So, do you remember what I said to you at your bar mitzvah? You said a lot of things, my bar mitzvah. What are you thinking of? I quoted Shakespeare to you. Above all, to thine own self be true. Sorry, go on. You know, I said it to you then, and I want to say it to you now, as you're about to enter the world, because you've got an amazing brain. (laughs) Hmm. And just go out there and use it to do good things. And I know you will. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. Josh Lippman and his mother, Sarah. Last week, Josh started a graduate program in library sciences and hopes to someday work at the Library of Congress, where all of his StoryCorps interviews are housed. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce tells us what the latest tracking shows for Hurricane Lee's potential impact on Massachusetts. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Members of the United Auto Workers are on strike against Detroit's big three automakers. Thousands of union workers walked off the job this morning at plants in three states. NPR's Daniel Cape says UAW contracts with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis expired late last night. This marks the first time UAW is striking against all the automakers at once. For now, workers at just three auto plants are walking off the job. A GM assembly plant in Missouri, a Stellantis assembly plant in Ohio, and part of a Ford plant in Michigan. That's fewer than 13,000 workers. But UAW President Sean Fain says more of the union's 150,000 members could follow suit at a moment's notice. This strategy will keep the companies guessing. It will give our national negotiators maximum leverage and flexibility in bargaining. The automakers have budged on their pay raise offers, but they're still far from meeting the union's demands on key economic issues. Workers are fighting to make up for years of stagnant wages and union concessions. Danielle Kay, NPR News. Auto executives say the UAW's demands would push labor costs too high. The White House says President Biden will make remarks on the UAW strike later today amid concerns about the ripple effects on the U.S. economy. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Officials are warning people to stay out of the ocean as Hurricane Lee makes its way up the coast. The Category 1 storm has prompted a tropical storm warning along the entire Massachusetts coastline. Forecasters warn there will be damaging winds and storm surge in the region tonight into tomorrow. Gloucester Fire Chief Eric Smith says because of their location on Cape Ann, some people inevitably go to the beach to watch the waves or even go surfing. He says that's dangerous difficult for us to get to or the operating conditions exceed the vessels in the area to do rescue, um, you're putting yourself in harm's way where we can't even really get out to help you. Smith warns that rip currents can take you out to sea quickly and says, don't risk it. The state attorney general's office will provide grant money to help migrants in Massachusetts. The $700,000 program will help cover legal services for new arrivals. According to the attorney general's office, the recent influx of migrants is outpacing the capacity of legal services. The Regatta Bar in Harvard Square is reopening tonight after a long shutdown. The iconic jazz club originally opened in the Charles Hotel in 1985. It closed at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. WBUMAR's Lynn Jolliker has more. The Regatta Bar will reopen with a quintet led by renowned saxophonist and Berklee College Woodwinds chair Walter Smith III. The club will host different styles of jazz and acts ranging from big-name touring artists to local up-and-comers. Charles Hotel Entertainment Manager Jeremy Cohen says he hopes patrons and artists will feel it's their place. It's not just about hearing music, it's about a scene, a vibe, a hang, and a point of connection and incubation for local musicians and local music fans as well. Other upcoming regatta bar shows include vocalist Tierney Sutton with vibraphonist Joe Locke and rising star drummer Berkeley student Lumignano Mazzee in a new artist series. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
The Red Sox are now tied with the Yankees for last place in the American League East. The team split yesterday's doubleheader at Fenway. The Sox now head across the border to Canada to face the Blue Jays in Toronto tonight. A mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 70, mostly overcast tonight with a low around 60, and the winds will start to pick up as Hurricane Lee passes by. Showers are possible throughout Saturday. It'll be overcast with a high near 70. Then skies clear on Sunday. We'll have a sunny day with a high near 80. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson is in Birmingham, Alabama today for events marking 60 years since the Ku Klux Klan bombed a church on a Sunday morning, killing four black girls. It's an opportunity for us to recall the history and the meaning of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. NPR's Debbie Elliott is in Birmingham. Debbie, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Let's talk here about the history. What happened on September 15, 1963? Sure. Um, 16th Street Baptist Church was an important place during the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement in 1963. This was where all those young civil rights marchers would gather um, and they would do their training and then they would go marching through downtown. This particular day, uh, September 15th, was supposed to be Youth Sunday and the bomb exploded right near the ladies' lounge where girls were primping and getting ready for this important day. Uh, The bomb killed 11-year-old Denise McNair and three 14-year-olds, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Addie Mae Collins. And then Collins' younger sister, Sarah, was also in the restroom that day. She was wounded in the attack and lost an eye. It was just tragic, and it sent shockwaves around the world showing just how far uh, people were willing to go to maintain white supremacy in the American South. How did people across the country respond to those shockwaves? You know, many credit the events in Birmingham, along with Medgar Evers' assassination in Mississippi that same year, with galvanizing support for the Civil Rights Act. Um, Bombing survivor Sarah Collins Rudolph says she takes solace in that. Our history changed things, you know, Civil rights bill was passed, and uh, those girls did not die in vain, and I thank God for that. What are some other things people are saying 60 years later in Birmingham? You know, the message that I've been hearing this week is that there are lessons for America today. Carolyn McKinstry was 15 years old at the time. She was the Sunday school secretary and had actually answered a phone call that morning where a man simply said three minutes and hung up and then the bomb went off. Uh, She has made it her ministry to retell this story. She had been so traumatized that she was silent about it for 20 years. Here's what she says now. 60 years later... I see things that are frighteningly reminiscent of what happened in the 1960s. 
She says she's concerned that hate crimes are on the rise and that not enough people are speaking out the same way it was back then. Um, she's also concerned politicians, some politicians are trying to squelch this type of history, talking about this type of history. McKinstry says she's going to keep telling her story to remind people that racial violence and hate can only lead to what she says is devastation. What does it mean to people in Alabama that Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson is in town to emphasize this history? You know, I talked with former Alabama Senator Doug Jones about that. He was the federal prosecutor who brought two of the Birmingham bombers to justice nearly 40 years later. Mm. He is going to introduce the justice today, and here's what he thinks about her standing in that historic pulpit. I don't think in 1963 people fully appreciated what we lost with those lives of those four girls and the potential that they had. She is the embodiment of that she is what those girls could have been. She is what those girls should have been. Now, during the service today, church bells throughout Birmingham are going to ring in unison at the time that the bomb exploded 60 years ago. Debbie, thanks. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice. Thank you. You're welcome. NPR's Debbie Elliott is in Birmingham. In Georgia, efforts to punish the prosecutor who charged Donald Trump and 18 others with election interference have amplified a divide among the former president's supporters and the rest of the state's GOP. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports on the rift. It didn't take long after a sweeping racketeering indictment was filed for Republicans to denounce the charges and demand action. First up, call for a special legislative session to strip funds from Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's office and potentially remove her from the job. That push is led by freshman state Senator Colton Moore speaking here about it on The Charlie Kirk Show. I mean, this is disgusting. We have a district attorney using taxpayer money, using her government authority to persecute her political opponent to the tune of the death penalty. Willis is not seeking to execute Donald Trump or anyone else for their efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election, but it's the type of extreme rhetoric used by Moore and other Trump supporters in their quest to punish the prosecutor. On the pro-Trump right, the effort is gaining steam, thanks in part to a co-sign from the former president himself. Highly respected Georgia State Senator Colton Moore deserves thanks and congratulations of everyone for having the courage and conviction to fight the radical left lunatics who are so badly hurting the great state of Georgia and, frankly, the USA itself. But in the state capitol, the effort to undermine Willis has hit several roadblocks. The first one, math. Calling a special session would require three-fifths of Georgia's lawmakers in each chamber, which means convincing Democrats to join. It also means having way more support than the three Republican lawmakers who are publicly backing it, most colleagues have rejected a special session as a, quote, publicity and fundraising campaign. Governor Brian Kemp is also among the GOP figures who pushed back on the idea as impossible and politically irresponsible. The last time we were talking about special sessions here in the state of Georgia, just a few weeks later, the Republican majority lost two U.S. Senate races. Just like in 2020, when some on the right called for a special session to overturn the presidential election results, Kemp warns that a focus on the past could cost the GOP in the future. 
That's why he's also opposed to plans from other Republican lawmakers to investigate Willis using a new prosecutor oversight panel. The fight over Willis illustrates the fault lines within the Republican Party over Trump. Take this comment at a rally for Senator Moore's ill-fated push for a special session. It's from Brian Pritchard, a vice chairman of the Georgia GOP, about the state's governor, secretary of state, and attorney general. They say you never say anything negative about a Democrat. You never say a, a negative word about a Democrat. I do. I never fail to mention Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, and Chris Carr. All three of those are conservative Republicans, and all three survived pro-Trump primary challengers in the 2022 midterms, winning in blowout fashion. The disconnect between Donald Trump and other popular GOP leaders will continue to be on display in Georgia heading into next year. Polls show he is still the runaway favorite to be the party's presidential nominee, even as voters in key states and from both parties have rejected his vision in recent elections. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Friday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about startup companies that expanded into the health insurance market in recent years and looks at why those startups are now in serious trouble along with their customers. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Cape Cod and the islands are bracing for possible high winds and storm surge as Hurricane Lee continues north. The storm has been downgraded to Category 1 and is expected to remain more than 100 miles off our coast. But forecasters are still expecting it to bring damaging winds and flooding, especially on the Cape and Islands. We're joined now by Truro's Harbor Master, Tony Jacket, to learn more about preparations for the storm. Good morning. Good morning. So what's it like out there this morning? Can you tell that there's a storm approaching? Well, it's sort of calm before the storm. We've had very little wind, and we got a little bit just picking up out of the north. And I think don't think we'll see anything um, as far as uh, strengthening winds until later tonight. How have you been able to prepare so far? Well, we prepared for a hurricane, and that meant uh, a lot of boats were hauling out uh, and um, securing lines, tying things off that, that could to get swept away. We have an emergency management team here in, uh, in Truro, uh, on, and so there'll be increased staffing uh, over the weekend. Is there anything more to do today? I expect more boats last minute will want to haul out. I, I think the commercial... Hall is pretty well booked, so if a boat wants to move, a lot of times boats from Provincetown, a neighboring town, they'll come into uh, our harbor, and it is a harbor refuge. It's more protected. And what are you telling residents to prepare for? Storm surge, flooding? How do you think this will play out? Well, I think there's um, basically a checklist for for people so they have... uh, their phones charged, plenty of water on hand in case the power goes out. 
and check on your neighbors. Uh, you know, we've had more rain, uh, so the ground's on the wet side, and, you know, it could be uh, trees that fall, and we have all the leaves. We get this kind of wind during the winter, but, you know, the leaves are gone and the ground's hard. So as far as the wind goes, we're used to uh, storms, blizzards, that sort of thing. So does this feel like old hat at this point, or is it something that is rare? It's been rare. We haven't had had a, a threat of a hurricane in many, many years now, decades. Are you thinking, I mean, as you do all these preparations, is it possible to think about climate change and and that this is part of what's happening right now, or is it something you'll think about later? No, the town and many of the communities, they have committees that de- are dealing with climate change, so that's that's high, high priority. Tony Jacket is the Truro Harbor Master. Thanks very much and stay safe. Thank you. The forecast for Hurricane Lee has been evolving throughout the week, and so have predictions for the impact it'll have on our region. Right now, the entire coastline of Massachusetts remains under a tropical storm warning as the system nears. Joining us to explain what the current storm models show now is WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Hey there, Danielle. Hey, good morning, Rupa. So where is Lee now, and how fast is it moving north? Okay, so Lee right now is about 490 miles south and southeast of Nantucket. Um, It's still a Category 1, 85-mile-per-hour powerful storm, and he's picked up a little bit of forward speed, so moving to the north at about 16 miles per hour. Um, That speed will continue to kind of ramp up a little bit today, but Lee will also continue to gradually weaken and undergo kind of a transition. If you look at the satellite, it actually doesn't look like a classic hurricane anymore. It's kind of entering some colder waters, relatively speaking, off of New England, and it will make a pass about 200 miles off to our east. So this will not be a direct hit, and therefore impacts will be very variable depending on where you are. When do you think we'll start to feel its impact? You know, it's funny. For somewhere like Boston, right, for us, it it seems like we're kind of removed from the worst, right? So we may get into some rain bands overnight tonight and for tomorrow morning, but it may be showery. Inland, we could be talking about a couple of showers, not much wind. The primary impacts are going to be felt right along the immediate coastline, particularly for the South Shore, but especially for Cape Cod and Nantucket. And the height of the storm, Rupa, is going to be overnight tonight into tomorrow morning. And for those areas that'll be hardest hit, what Mm -hmm. do you expect to see there? So the biggest issue is going to be the wave action. Um, And it sounds silly, oh, just some waves. But here's the thing. Outside of the storm center, I've been looking at some of the buoys this morning. They're 30, 35 foot seas outside of Lee Center. Now, we're not going to see those type of waves, but we already have five to 10 foot seas right now. And that will build to about six to 12 foot seas by the end of today, perhaps some 15 foot seas by tomorrow morning. So there's going to be significant beach erosion, large crashing waves at the coast and some minor coastal flooding, especially for Cape Cod Bay and Nantucket, midnight high tide, and then the midday high tide tomorrow, just because so much water is going to be piling up. Uh, The wind will also be a concern. I'm thinking gusts to 60 miles per hour on the Cape, which, think about it, Cape Cod gets those gusts, I don't want to say, you know, fairly regularly, but pretty frequently. Um, So I think some pockets of outages will occur, but I don't think it'll be anything widespread. I can't rule out an isolated gust to 70, but that would be for the outer Cape. Everybody else, I think Boston may gust to about 40, maybe 45 miles per hour. 
isolated outages would be the primary concern, um, but no real flooding rain for anyone, which is great news, obviously, too, because it's just been so wet with flash flooding recently. As we mentioned, the predictions have been changing a lot over the last couple of days. Are you pretty certain at this point that this is what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, we've really been honing in on that center of the National Hurricane Center track, which has been offshore for several days. And the closer you get to, you know, potential impacts, that cone of uncertainty gets smaller. So we are not looking at, you know, a huge shift in the track. Sure, could it wobble by, you know, a few miles east or west? Yes, but the direct impact will be for the western tip of Nova Scotia. Eastern Maine will have some strong winds too. They're under a tropical storm warning, but it's mainly right along the immediate coast. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised actually if the sun comes out by tomorrow afternoon and evening on the backside of this storm. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thank you very much. Thanks, Rupa. Stay safe. You too. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on recovery efforts in Morocco, and they'll have the latest on the um, situation in Ukraine. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. New England is bracing for the impact of Hurricane Lee as the Category 1 storm makes its way up the Atlantic coast. The death toll from floods in Libya is now more than 11,000 as search and rescue efforts continue. And closing arguments begin today in the impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Union car and truck workers walk off the job at three plants as contract negotiations continue. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. I'm David Brancaccio. Members of the United Auto Workers Union started a limited strike last night against GM, Ford, and Stellantis. It's the first time unionized auto workers have walked off the job at all three companies at once, reflecting the high stakes. Automakers say they're in a fight for survival as the industry electrifies. Workers want to reverse wage and benefit concessions at a time the labor market is strong. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. Less than 10% of UAW members walked off the job last night, but union president Sean Fain said the strike could spread. This is our generation's defining moment. The money is there, the cause is righteous, the world is watching, and the UAW is ready to stand up. 
The union wants pay increases of 36% over four years, and it wants to reverse concessions over pensions and pay made during the Great Recession. In the first half of this year, the Detroit Three made a combined $21 billion in profits. But automakers say the workers' demands are unaffordable because they must invest in electrification. Here's GM CEO Mary Barra in a company video. If we don't continue to invest, we will lose ground, and it will happen fast. Our competition across the country and around the world, most of whom are non-union, will waste no time seizing the opportunity we've handed them. The previous UAW strike in 2019 against GM lasted 40 days. This time around, the strategy of targeting a limited number of plants could help stretch out the union strike fund for a longer battle. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. That strike fund would last 11 weeks, 77 days if all members went on strike. But again, they're striking at just three facilities for now, Wayne, Michigan, Wentzville, Missouri, and Toledo, Ohio. The union wants the car companies to return to pensions for retirees that offer set amounts per month rather than the invest-it-yourself 401k plans available to those hired since 2007. The California State University System, the country's largest public university system, will be raising its tuition by 6% a year for five straight years starting in the fall of next year. CSU's not alone. West Virginia University and Rutgers in New Jersey are among those raising tuition significantly. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes reports. Cal State points out it's only raised tuition once in the past 12 years, and even public universities have to deal with inflation. Robert Kelchin researches higher ed finance as a professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Faculty and staff are expecting pay raises. Utilities have gone up. Health insurance benefits have gone up. All the operating costs have gone up. Kelchin says in many states, the legislatures aren't interested in giving any more funding to university systems. And so? The importance of tuition has gotten bigger and bigger. And in about half the states, public colleges are getting more money from tuition than from the state. Public schools also have many fixed costs, but fewer potential customers. Kevin Carey is with New America. The phrase that people in higher education use is the enrollment cliff. Cal State University says for a majority of its students, the tuition increase will be covered by grants and scholarships. Still, Carey says, ultimately tuition increases affect students at the margin most of all. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Markets Dow futures are up a tenth of a percent. S&P futures are little changed. NASDAQ futures are down two tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Some startups using venture capital money to disrupt the health insurance business have run into serious trouble, which is also trouble for their customers. Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kenny reports. Lauren Gibbs always wanted to work for herself. She's a real estate agent in Lakewood, Colorado. Being my own boss was just going to make more sense. To do that, she had to buy her own health insurance. And in 2020, she was excited to sign on with a new startup company called Bright Healthcare. I was like, this seems like a pretty good deal. And, you know, I think that the health insurance industry is like, needs some disruptors and some innovation. But it didn't last. 
Last December, Bright Healthcare's startup model was failing, and it was pulling out of the individual health insurance market across the country. That affected nearly a million people with Bright Insurance, including Gibbs, who had to scramble for a new plan. Her next provider was another startup called Friday Health Plans. Turns out it was also in deep financial trouble. State regulators shut down that company in August. Some customers had to start all over on their deductibles. Gibbs estimates she'll be out close to $3,000. The reason we have insurance is so we don't have an unexpected expense, like $3,000. Together, Friday Health and Bright Healthcare had collected more than $3 billion in investor funding. So what happened? They didn't understand health insurance. Health insurance is really complicated. Health insurance consultant Ari Gottlieb says the math didn't pencil out for these startups. Sure, their premiums were low, but that meant these companies weren't taking in enough revenue to cover the healthcare expenses they were on the hook for. But because they started to lose money in a number of different markets, they started to, to set off some alarm bells for us. That's Colorado Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway. He says company leaders weren't giving state regulators the full financial picture. In the case of Friday, they made bad, bad, very, very bad decisions at the management level, at the C-suite level, for years that led ultimately ended up leading to their failure. He says state regulators did everything they could. Both Friday and Bright Healthcare are now largely out of the insurance business nationwide. Neither company responded to requests for comment. But that's not much comfort to customers like Lauren Gibbs. Having these two collapses in a row in Colorado, the state regulators, the governor, they need to pay attention to this and understand that these are real people's lives and health on the line. Gibbs is begrudgingly going back to a much larger health insurer. She hopes this one will stay in business. In Colorado, I'm Andrew Kenny for Marketplace. And we are from APM American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Masters in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.